Three months ago, the U.S. closed its embassy in Kiev, Ukraine, days before Russia invaded. Today, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the embassy is up and running once again. It's Wednesday, May 18th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Secretary of State Blinken is at the UN to talk about the global response to acute human suffering in and around Ukraine. Parents and kids in Buffalo, black and white, talk about the grocery store shooting and how they're speaking with their children about what happened. My wife took the opportunity to talk to them to let them know that there's people out here that will target you based on the color of your skin. These stories and how abortion laws may be ultimately enforced around the country, coming up. It's 401. News headlines and Wall Street numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The Dow Jones Industrial Average sinks more than 1,100 points, marking its biggest loss since 2020. NPR's David Gurr reports disappointing earnings reports from retailers reinforce investors' fears about the U.S. economy. Shares of Target sank after it reported results for the first quarter that were not in line with what Wall Street expected. Like Walmart, which reported earnings on Tuesday, Target faced problems with inventory and consumer demand, and it had trouble navigating supply chain issues. For much of the day, its shares traded down around 25%. Wall Street was already worried about high inflation, and these earnings reports from retailers fueled that fear and concern the Federal Reserve will not be able to rein in prices that have been rising at their fastest pace in decades without starting a recession. David Gura, NPR News, New York. The governor of New York is seeking tougher gun control actions through executive orders and bills. In the aftermath of last Saturday's mass shooting in Buffalo, investigators, meanwhile, are still gathering information about the young man they say was a self-described white supremacist who targeted black people when he opened fire to top supermarket, killing 10 and wounding three others. NPR Cheryl Corley has more. For now, he faces a single count of first-degree murder. Uh, more charges from the county district attorney are expected. And investigators are going over a lengthy document that he posted online, and there's a federal investigation underway, so he may face federal hate crime charges. NPR Cheryl Corley reporting. One of the former Minneapolis police officers involved in George Floyd's killing two years ago next week is pleading guilty to a state charge of aiding and abetting second-degree manslaughter. Thomas Lane and two others have already been convicted on federal charges that they willfully violated Floyd's rights and failing to help the African-American man as he struggled to breathe, while then-officer Derek Chauvin had him pinned face down on the ground. Chauvin spending the next two decades in state prison for murder under his plea deal, Lane, may serve a small fraction of that time concurrently with a yet-to-be-determined federal sentence. Most of the artillery sent by the U.S. to Ukraine is already being used in combat, according to the Pentagon. NPR's Quill Lawrence reports Russian progress continues to be slow. A senior defense official says Ukrainian troops have forced the Russian army to fight over villages and even crossroads in eastern Ukraine, in some places driving them back to within a few miles of the Russian border. The official said 79 heavy cannons sent by the U.S. have aided that fight and that so far Russia has failed to significantly interrupt the supply of arms and material from the West. The Pentagon official also said that if and when Sweden and Finland join NATO, the U.S. will take advantage of many decades of previous military cooperation with those two countries as they integrate with the NATO alliance. Quill Lawrence, NPR News. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts state lawmakers released a bill today that's intended to make child care more affordable for lower- and middle-income families. It would also expand grants to child care providers and raise pay for early educators. WBUR's Yasmin Ammer has more. Massachusetts is one of the most expensive states for child care. An infant spot costs around $20,000 per year. On the other hand, early educators are leaving the field at record numbers because of low pay. The new bill's co-sponsor, State Senator Jason Lewis, says it would make longer-term investments in early education. This really is a high priority for state leaders, both in the legislature, you know, the administration, uh, among business leaders and community leaders. This is a high priority, right, in the way that it maybe hasn't been in the past. The legislature is also considering a separate proposal that would boost funding for early education next year by more than a third. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Ammer. Massachusetts U.S. Senator Ed Markey is urging federal regulators to investigate the marketing of assault-style weapons to children. Markey and 10 fellow U.S. senators, including Elizabeth Warren, have sent a letter to the Federal Trade Commission. They say gunmakers are engaged in marketing tactics that are dangerous and irresponsible. The senators make the call after the mass shootings in uh, Buffalo and Orange County, California, over last weekend. Specifically, Markey singles out gun dealer We One Tactical, whose website includes images and videos of children holding assault-style rifles. The company has not responded to a request for comment. A Roxbury-based food service provider has landed a contract to make meals for the Boston Public Schools. Mayor Michelle Wu announced the $17 million deal today with City Fresh Foods. The mayor says it's the largest contract Boston has ever given a certified black-owned business outside of construction work. School officials say the deal will provide fresh food to students and support local workers at the same time. In the forecast, sure is nice out there right now, but clouds should be on the increase over the next several hours. Overnight tonight, on the chilly side, about 53. Then tomorrow should only reach about 58 tops with showers early tomorrow, cloudy skies through the day. Friday, back to the sunshine and the warmth once again could reach the upper 70s. 72 degrees now in Boston at 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments is a fiduciary, which means they always put clients' interests first. Fisher Investments, clearly different money management. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Poland. More than six million people have fled Ukraine since Russia invaded. Poland has welcomed a majority of them, providing work visas, social services, and cash to people who are escaping war with almost nothing. But not all those who've left Ukraine are Ukrainian. And some citizens of African countries have found that the doors of Europe are much less open to them. We wanted to help people of color. So we were accommodating Ghanaians, Cameroonians, Gambians, and, you know, people from everywhere. Tade Daniel Omotosho moved to Poland from Nigeria 15 years ago for school. He has dual citizenship, and he's raising three daughters in Warsaw. Last year, he became chairman of Poland's Nigerians in Diaspora organization, and he figured the job would mostly be community building. What we should be doing normally as an organization should be just bringing Nigerians together, organizing events, um, of course, business-related stuff, community development, not this thing we're doing here. This thing we're doing here is a humanitarian relief effort for African students who were living in Ukraine when Russia attacked. In late February, Omotosho heard that black people trying to flee the war were getting stopped, harassed, and even detained at the border of Poland. 
So he made the five-hour drive east from Warsaw to help whoever he could find. Sometimes he'd see a black person at the border and just pull over the car to ask if they needed anything. He posted his phone number online, saying Africans seeking help should give him a call. That went viral, like viral. I mean, I, I got people sending me my own number. Like, if you need help, these are the numbers to call. <laughs> you know, so it was like, oh my God. He'd post on Twitter, albeit this border crossing at this time. You can't imagine, it was so difficult. Um, so at some point, each time I get back home, I just drop my phone, give it to my wife, and then she helps with just replying every single of those messages. His organization procured a bus and found volunteers to help shuttle people to Warsaw. They put African students in donated Polish hotel rooms and used vouchers from Airbnb. They got donations from a GoFundMe campaign, and people sent money through PayPal. After a few weeks, the acute emergency started to transform into a more long-term challenge. And now, it's been months. There is no help from the government yet, I mean from the Polish government yet. Tell me what Ukrainians in Poland have access to that the students here do not have access to because they're from African countries. Two words. White privilege. <laughs> White privilege, that's just it, you know. So if they were Ukrainians, they would have access to free medical care. Um, they would have access to the social security number. Those who have children would have access to monthly sort of stipends. I could imagine somebody saying, well, Ukrainians have no country to go back to because there's a war. But if you're from Nigeria, you could go back to Nigeria. What would you say to that? Again, white privilege, because you do not have an idea what it takes to leave Nigeria and go study in Ukraine. Some of them, their parents borrowed money. Some of them, their parents just say, OK, this is all I've got on me. I'm going to make sure I'm going to send you to school. So it's not just so easy to say, go back to Nigeria. We asked the Polish government why they don't give Nigerians who fled Ukraine the same benefits as Ukrainians, and they didn't respond. And so the African students who fled to Poland are in limbo. Many of them are living in a rented two-story house surrounded by forests on the outskirts of Warsaw. This is a joyful home. Chizoba Joy Oche is officially the general secretary of the Nigerians in Diaspora Organization of Poland. Unofficially, she's the house mother here. They are happy people. Oh, are you sad? No, ma'am, very happy. So? 25 African students are staying at this house right now. Many more have passed through since the war started. We have somebody that have arrived like 72 hours ago. Most of the students here are in their late teens. They cram into bunk beds, five or more to a room. This is a makeshift, uh, a makeshift bed. It's <laughs> so you have squeezed beds into every corner you possibly yeah. can. We have to do that. Yeah, we have to do that. The teenagers crowd around a stove cooking noodles and beans. During the day, they play soccer in the yard or take courses online. You see how online classes do. They're really trying their best. Emmanuel is 17. We're only using the students' first names since their legal status is uncertain. I was studying, like, wanted to be a medical doctor. I was still my first year, you know, had big plans, big dreams. You're, you're using the past tense. You say, I had big plans, had big dreams. Well, thanks for the notification. I, I still have the big dreams of the world. <laughs> How long have you been here in this house? Uh, a month. And you've made friends? Uh, family. Family? Yeah. Uh... <laughs> Is this guy part of your family now? Yes. The two young men give each other a hug. What's your name? Yeah, I'm Daniel. I'm 17 years old. Are you also a medical student? Yes, I was studying medicine in Kiev before I left. That's true of most of the students here. When I was little, I was like, okay, 
I want to be a doctor. Ima is 19, and she spent four months learning Ukrainian in the city of Ivano-Frankivsk, preparing to start medical school. Then the war broke out before she could begin her graduate studies. It's not easy because if I have to um, continue my studies, I have to apply fresh as a new student, and I don't have all my documents. All my, my, my high school certificates, they're all in Ukraine, the original copies. So what does that mean for your plans for your future? I, I actually want to go back to Ukraine. That's the only resource right now, to go back to Ukraine. The teenagers here at the house do the kinds of things families would do together. Braiding hair, watching videos online, anything to create some sense of normalcy during this scary, uncertain time. Once a month, they have a celebration for everybody in the house who had a birthday. Happy birthday to you. A student named Shakira shows us this video on her phone of last month's celebration. She had been pursuing a graduate degree in philology, the study of languages, when she fled Ukraine. Now, she feels like she's watching her life slip by as weeks turn into months. We are tired of being here. Nothing is happening. Our life is we're just like stuck in a cage. In a refugee crisis, you often find a cross-section of society. But at this shelter, nobody is average. There may be more people pursuing higher education crammed into this one house than in any other single-family dwelling in Warsaw. All the students here are people with the skills, smarts, and ambition to seek out a degree in a foreign country, in a foreign language. And so, while being adrift would be frustrating for anyone, it chafes even more for type A overachievers like Shakira. We didn't committed any crime. We want to pursue our education. We want to pursue our dreams. We want to get, you know, going, not post and then nothing is happening. Okay, what are you doing now? We've been here for like going two months. You're stuck in between. You know, it can go forward, it can go backward. The law should favor us also. We are not Ukrainians, yes, but we should understand that we are there when this war happened. The war has transformed millions of lives. And years from now, these young people may look back on their time at this house as a key moment when everything shifted. But it's impossible to know whether it will be a moment when their life was briefly on pause or one when their plans for the future were entirely derailed. Tomorrow, the scene at Poland's busiest border crossing, where the long lines are now going into Ukraine. When you get home, what will be the first thing you do? Uh, I am Budo Tsomate. I love you, my husband. <laughs> the war in Ukraine is also having ripple effects across the developing world. Food and energy costs are spiking, and that was already true before Russia invaded Ukraine, as Secretary of State Antony Blinken says. Every driver of the crisis that we'll discuss today has been made worse by President Putin's war of choice. Blinken chaired a meeting at UN headquarters today about global food security. NPR's Michelle Kellerman is here to tell us what happened. Hey, Michelle. Hi there, Mary Louise. All right, so what's the U.S. trying to get out of this meeting? Well, mostly Blinken wants to show that the U.S. cares about the problems that many countries in the world face right now. There's been so much focus on the war in Ukraine, including at the U.N., but many countries are consumed by their own problems, rising food and energy prices, climate change, the coronavirus pandemic, conflicts, and many also complain that U.S. sanctions on Russia are making matters worse. Hmm. Blinken... Um, 
made clear in this meeting today that he said that's false. He said uh, Russia's war and the blockade of Ukrainian ports are the real problem now. He announced some new aid and and talked about how the U.S. is really looking for solutions. And by the way, the U.N. Secretary General um, also spoke, and he said the world needs the food and fertilizer that Ukraine and Russia produce. And he says he's been having really intense contacts about that. Okay. Uh, Let me turn you to another item on Secretary Blinken's calendar today. He met with Turkey's foreign minister. What was that about? Well, he wants to make sure that Turkey is not going to be a spoiler when it comes to NATO. Uh, Russia's war in Ukraine prompted Finland and Sweden to take historic steps to join the alliance. But Turkey is raising some doubts. Um, Just listen to what the Turkish foreign minister Mevlet Cevasolu had to say at a brief appearance with Blinken today. You know, we have also uh, legitimate security concerns that they have been supporting uh, terrorist organizations and there are also uh, export restrictions on uh, defense products. So what I'm trying to say, we understand their security concerns, but Turkey's security concerns should be also uh, met. And when he talks about terrorist organizations, he's talking about, you know, the Kurdish militant group, the PKK, and Mm. followers of an exiled cleric that Turkey says was behind a 2016 coup attempt. So it seems the Turks are really trying to use this issue of NATO membership to get some concessions from allies. And just quickly, uh, Secretary Blinken made a little news today. This is about the U.S. embassy in Kiev. Right. So the flag that was taken down before Russia invaded is now back up and the embassy is officially reopened. Uh, Blinken said there are additional security measures in place at the embassy. Um, He called it a momentous step and a sign of continued support for Ukraine. And PR's Michelle Kellerman. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, how parents and children can talk together about the shooting spree at a market in Buffalo last weekend. I'm Lisa Mullins checking business news. The pace of recreational marijuana sales in Massachusetts is picking up. State regulators said today that pot retailers have sold more than $3 billion in products since the first shops opened in 2018. It took nearly two years to sell the first billion. It took just eight months to sell the third billion. Wall Street was way down. The numbers are coming up next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation, believing that everyone benefits when we come together to build more equitable communities. The Boston Foundation is embracing its role as a civic leader to seize this moment. TBF is joining with its many partners to build a greater Boston that works for everyone. Learn more at tbf.org slash civic leadership. The Dow dropped 1,165 points today, more than 3.5% to finally close at 31,490. S&P fell 4% to close at 3,924. The Nasdaq sank 4 and 3 quarters percent to finally settle at 11,418. What happened on Wall Street? Coming up tonight on Marketplace, it starts at 6.30. It's now 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Summer semester starts June 6th. SemesterOff.com. 
Partly cloudy skies tonight down around 53 for tomorrow. Look for showers early, clouds through the day. Decidedly cooler tomorrow, 58 degrees tops. 72 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Join Alexander Vindman or Nobel laureate Maria Ressa at WBUR's gala. Tickets at WBUR.org gala. Thanks to sponsors Mikkel and Doug Rao. Support for NPR comes from this station and from CFP, Certified Financial Planner Professionals, focused on providing holistic financial planning from retirement and investments to taxes and estate planning in the client's best interest. Let's make a plan.org. And from Easy Cater, committed to solving food for today's workplaces, from sales meetings to employee lunches, online ordering from more than 80,000 restaurants, corporate food solutions at easycater.com. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Emily Fang. The Saturday shooting attack on a Buffalo grocery store left the community torn and searching for answers. For many parents, broaching the subject with their children made the moment even harder. NPR's Alana Wise spoke to these families and brings us this story. For Black parents like Reverend Denise Walden Glenn, news of the shooting, allegedly perpetrated by an 18-year-old with racist ideals, struck especially close to home. Her 12 children, biological and chosen, range in age from 13 to 26. One of my sons is 18 years old, and his very first question to me was like, Mom, how does someone my age do something so hateful? How do you explain that? to your child. Since Saturday, Glenn and her office at Voice, a social justice organization in Buffalo, have been working overtime. Her middle school-aged children didn't go to school on Monday. We went through such a violent violation, and we are so shaken, and I don't understand how it feels as though it's expected to go on with life as normal. Tyrell Ford also works at Voice. After the shooting, he and his wife sat their two elementary-age sons down to explain to them what happened. My wife took the opportunity to talk to them, to let them know that there's people out here that will target you based on the color of your skin. Ford's wife works as a first-grade teacher. She had to go back to work on Monday. They had a circle to bring the teachers together to see how everybody's feeling. And the, the black group just said they just broke down crying. He said that Buffalo should give parents and students time away from work and school to grieve. I don't think they're going to fully understand until they get a little bit older and start to see the world for what it truly is. And that's the risk we run with, like, exposing them to the dark side of the world so early on. White parents have also had to have difficult conversations with their children. 19-year-old Julia Wazinski attended a vigil with her mother and sister. I felt like he was really young, and it's just awful that so many young people can be influenced like this to do bad things. We was all shooken up that it happened. Jaden Durham is an 11-year-old student who attended one of the vigils with his mother and four siblings. He's black. After the Saturday mass shooting, he said his school practiced active shooter drills to teach them what to do if they ever find themselves in a similar situation. Our teachers will say, like, when something happens like that, be calm and just rock down the stairs and go outside. Also at the vigil was Candace Ernai and her five-year-old daughter, Alina. 
They work to pass out supplies like food and diapers alongside their church group. We actually just spoke to her before we came. Didn't fully get into details, but just let her know that an individual hurt a lot of people within a grocery store. And um, we just kept it at that. Alina understood some of what happened, but prodded her parents with questions like whether the man did it because he had a bad day. We let her know that someone who had views that were against the word of God decided to act out of fear and violence rather than peace. But one question still weighed on five-year-old Alina. How did it happen? A question her parents were so careful to shield her from. Alana Wise, NPR News, Buffalo, New York. One million people have died in the U.S. from COVID-19. NPR has been remembering some of them through the music that gave their lives meaning. We call these tributes Songs of Remembrance. Today, Deborah McCoskey-Reisert remembers her brother, Bobby McCoskey, and his favorite song, Closing Time, by Semisonic. Bobby was a Salvation Army bell ringer and a Special Olympics state silver medalist. He loved people and dancing and slot machines. I think one of our last trips was to Tunica, Mississippi. We met to play at the casino. Bobby loves the slot machines. And it got late, so we decided to go back to the hotel. Well, we decided to first knock on mom's door and take off running first. And <laughs> we were all laughing so hard in the hallway. And it was almost like we were little kids again. There were dances specifically for people with disabilities. Bobby went and he fit in very well there. It was a place that he could go, have a really good time, be accepted. Many of us know the song because it's played when the bars close. Well, <laughs> it's played at the end of the dances as well. Closing time, turn all of the lights on over every boy and every girl. But there's some lyrics in closing time that get to me a little bit. I think one of them says something about until your brothers and sisters come. This room won't be open till your brothers or your sisters come. And it makes me think of Bobby being in heaven. And then at the end it says, Closing time, every new beginning comes from some other beginnings end. You know, Bobby's gone now, and now we've had to learn what life looks like without him. We received a call on April 8th of 2020 saying that Bobby had tested positive for the virus. And the next couple of weeks were up and down. I called him up and I said, hey, Bobby, guess what day it is? He said, your birthday. I said, did you get me something? And he said, well, I tried to. I thought he meant he tried to get something from the gift shop. I was wrong. He made a painting for me. And that's the day they released him from the hospital. When I finally reached him on Saturday morning, he was not himself anymore. I called the nursing home and I said, I want you to take my brother back to the hospital. Something is not right. And they didn't send him back to the hospital. On Wednesday, a lady from the nursing home called. I thought she was just calling to give me a report. And she told me that Robert passed tonight. 
At the time in Indiana, funerals were limited to 10 people, but that wasn't the way of sending Bobby off. Bobby was extra special. He would never have loved to sit through a funeral. <laughs> so gather up your jackets, move it to the exits. I hope you have found a friend. There was a parade around my mom's block that began with a fire engine, a Salvation Army truck, a Special Olympics band, tons of family and friends that had smiley face balloons tied to their cars. Our family stood out ringing bells and holding signs that said, be kind for Bobby or honk for Bobby. And it was the greatest celebration of his life. I know. That was Deborah McCoskey Reiser, remembering her brother, Bobby McCoskey, who died at the age of 55 from COVID-19. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The forecast, partly cloudy skies overnight tonight, down around 53. Tomorrow, we should wake up to rain with clouds through the afternoon, relatively chilly, only about 58. Hiking to the upper 70s on Friday could reach the low 90s over the weekend. It's 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Goddard House in Brookline, an innovative senior community for those seeking meaning, growth, and purpose in each and every day. GoddardHouse.org. Tapas 529 in Melrose, a neighborhood restaurant, a global vibe. Private events welcome, Spanish and Mediterranean cuisine to sample and share. And Volante Farms in Needham, celebrating spring with their Crescent Ridge ice cream stand, now open year-round. Seasonal hours at volantefarms.com. Hey, congratulations, you have seized the Russian oligarch's super yacht. Now, what are you going to do with it? These are yachts that really require an enormous amount of maintenance and an enormous amount of money constantly going into them. I'm Kai Rizdal. When assets become liabilities, next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. Federal health officials say about a third of the country is considered at high risk for COVID-19 as cases rise in parts of the U.S. CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky. For areas currently with high COVID-19 community levels, those in orange, we urge local leaders to encourage the use of prevention strategies like masking in public indoor settings and increasing access to testing and to treatment. And Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra tested positive for COVID while on a trip to Germany ahead of G7 meetings of health ministers. Russia is expelling 34 French diplomats. And Piers Eleanor Beardsley reports the French Foreign Ministry isn't happy. Russia calls the French diplomats persona non grata and says they have two weeks to leave the country. It presented the expulsions as a response to France's decision to kick out 41 Russian diplomats in April that Paris had characterized as spies. Russia accused France of worsening relations between the two countries, but relations between Moscow and most European capitals have degraded because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. European nations have expelled scores of Russian diplomats in retaliation 
investigation, Russia has summoned the ambassadors of Spain, Italy and Sweden, along with the French ambassador. Russian media reported that Moscow also expelled several dozen Spanish and Italian diplomats. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. On Wall Street, stocks fell sharply after earnings results from major retailers showed they're suffering from rising costs that are eating into profits. Target shares tumbled more than 25% after saying its earnings in the first quarter fell from a year ago because of inflationary pressures, including higher costs tied to supply chain problems. A day earlier, Walmart issued a similar warning. By the bell, the Dow was down 1,164. The Nasdaq was down 566. The S&P 500 down 165. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Inflation is causing infrastructure improvement costs to soar in Massachusetts. State Transportation Secretary Jamie Tussler told the State Transportation Board today that the project to replace the Mass Turnpike Viaduct near Boston University is now expected to cost $2 billion. That's $300 million more than estimates from last fall. Tesla says the cost to replace the Bourne and Sagamore bridges over Cape Cod Canal could reach up to $4 billion. That's more than double the initial estimates. Local small business owners say inflation is having a ripple effect on their operations. Christopher Carlozzi is the state director of the National Federation of Independent Business. He says in many cases, the small business owner is forced to pass along the higher cost of fuel and supplies to customers. If they are a florist or a pizza shop or a restaurant, it's costing them more to deliver that pizza or deliver those flowers. It's costing them more for the the products that they're buying to make that uh, food that they're delivering. Carlosi says many small businesses are also struggling to find qualified applicants to fill positions. Boston High School students interested in the art scene are in luck. A summer program that pairs students with local cultural organizations will extend its programming for another two years. WBR's Lauren Williams has more. Mapping out a career in the art world is notoriously difficult. Ed Vesters, a school improvement nonprofit, has partnered with Bloomberg Philanthropies to help students explore the creative industry. Ed Vesters Vice President Ruth Mercado Zizzo says that the impacts of the program are long lasting. We're fortunate that the work sites that we work with all have a commitment as part of their mission to really mentor and help train young people and prepare them for the workforce, uh, whether they decide to go into the arts or not. 45 students will be selected to work with theater companies and other cultural groups. Interested Boston Public School students can apply through their school career specialist. For 90.9 WBUR, and Lauren Williams. 72 degrees in Boston. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Walnut Hill School for the Arts, championing creativity. Arts and academics for grades 9 to 12 apply for 2022-23. WalnutHillArts.org. Should be partly cloudy overnight tonight. Lows around 53. Could have some showers tomorrow morning up until about noontime. And then clouds through much of the day. Cooler tomorrow, 58 degrees tops. And then Friday, back to the sunshine, warming to the upper 70s. 72 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of a line probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. 
C3 AI is Enterprise AI. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Emily Fang. We know now that the Supreme Court may soon severely weaken or completely overturn abortion protections under Roe v. Wade. So what would that look like on the ground? Abortion bans tend to impact the people who are already the most vulnerable. That's Kim Mutcherson, a dean and professor of law at Rutgers University, where she specializes in reproductive justice. She says the people who will feel the impact of such abortion bans are... People who are low income, women of color, younger women who tend to find out about their pregnancies later into their pregnancy, um, women who live in rural areas undocumented immigrants. More than a dozen states already have trigger laws banning abortion on the books that would immediately go into effect if the Supreme Court decision lifts or weakens Roe. And about a dozen more states will likely follow suit. I asked Mutcherson about the future of enforcing such laws. How would any of these trigger laws actually enforce abortion providers or those seeking an abortion to stop doing that? For example, SBA in Texas, a law banning abortion providers, that incentivizes bounty hunters to report people seeking abortions or their providers. Is that model going to be replicated in other places? So one of the reasons why Texas passed that very odd law is they wanted to circumvent the ability of courts to stop the law from going into effect. And so what Texas did is it said nobody in Texas state government is allowed to enforce this statute. It is only going to be enforced by random people out in the world who identify that somebody is either providing abortions or that somebody has received an abortion or someone has aided and abetted another person in having an abortion. But now they don't have to worry about that anymore. So once Roe is overruled, There's no longer a concern of, well, we don't want this to get in front of a court that's going to say that we can't keep this statute anymore. So I don't think we'll see a lot of those. Um, And if we do see them, I think the way that we will see them is states that are trying to punish people for behavior that is happening out of state. And that's going to be a lot harder for them to track. And so they might want to incentivize people, you know, to turn in their neighbors and friends or whomever for going over state lines to get an abortion and then coming back home. That sounds like that might require someone to prove they know someone who has gotten an abortion or is seeking one out, which raises a whole host of questions about privacy and confidentiality of medical records. I mean, have states said anything about about that, whether they could um, whether abortions would be subject to some kind of public examination? So it would be very hard for states to say that they're just going to open up everybody's medical records, right? This this is actually a moment where HIPAA does apply. HIPAA, um, the doctor-patient confidentiality laws. Exactly. And one way in which HIPAA is not relevant is if the person who has your private medical information is not a healthcare provider, right? So you were talking to somebody at a grocery store or someone overheard you, they're not bound by HIPAA. So they could, you know, walk to the local police station and say, I was just in this grocery store and here was this person who said X. That's a pretty scary world to live in. Um, And so if we do get those kinds of bounty hunter laws that follow, um, that's one of the models that we might see there. Many states are likely to make providing an abortion a felony. So what kinds of reproductive services might be deemed a felony, who gets to decide 
to what level you have to do something for it to become a felony. Yeah. I mean, so one thing to really keep in mind is that a lot of states, even prior to what's about to happen to Roe and Casey, have gone sort of as close to the line as possible in terms of making it difficult for people to provide abortions or to get abortions. So a lot of abortion providers are already deeply accustomed to working within a whole host of restraints. And many states already have laws that ban abortion after viability, but they have to have exceptions for the life and the health of the pregnant person. And those typically will say that it's criminal, that you are subject to prison time, and that you are subject to losing your medical license. So for those folks, the question will be, you know, do I continue to try to provide health care in this particular state when I know that I'm at risk for getting arrested or I'm at risk for losing my medical license? And what about abortion medication, Kim? So medication abortion is useful up to about 10 weeks. It is easy to self-manage at home, but you have to get the pills. So a question for providers is going to be what happens when states, for instance, start making it criminal to provide pills over state lines? You know, are you willing to ship them? Are you willing to drive them to somebody else um, and still really put yourself at risk by doing that? Can you paint us a picture of a world in which that might be considered a felony? Would the provider of those pills or the provider of an abortion be subject to a felony only or also the person seeking an abortion? So it has very long been a tenant of the anti-choice movement that women should not be punished for having abortions. Um, and part of that is this sort of myth making that, you know, women only have abortions because the abortion industry is targeting them or their husbands or boyfriends are forcing them to have an abortion that they otherwise wouldn't have. So typically any kind of abortion ban carve out the person who's actually pregnant. What I think that we are going to see is a lot of states saying, we don't need that carve out anymore, right? Because there are going to be so many people who are self-managing their abortions that if you really want to stop abortions happening in your jurisdiction, you're going to have to go after medication abortions, and you're most likely going to have to go after the people who are actually having the abortions. But I think that sort of you know protective cocoon that has been around women who actually are the people who are terminating their pregnancies, I think that's going to start to dissipate pretty quickly. We've been talking a lot about restrictions to abortion, but there are other states like Vermont, for example, which say they might embed abortion rights directly into their state constitution if Roe is overturned. Where do you see abortion rights potentially getting strengthened? Every state has a state constitution. And many of those constitutions already provide broader rights than the federal constitution. And so, you know, some of those constitutions, for instance, very specifically have an equal rights amendment, which we don't have in our federal constitution. Um, some of those constitutions have um, specific provisions protecting a right to privacy, which is not specifically enumerated in the U.S. constitution. So in those states, appealing to your state constitution might get you to a place where you still have a right to have an abortion in those particular states. Um, the other thing that states are doing, and I'm recording this from New Jersey, which is where I live, um, New Jersey not so long ago passed a Reproductive Freedom Act, and the goal of that was to codify the right to terminate a pregnancy into New Jersey law. So we're going to see some states taking that sort of position. 
And then the other interesting thing that some states are already talking about is making themselves, you know, safe havens for people who want to terminate their pregnancies. So saying things like, we're not going to give names to anybody, <laughs> right? So if you show up with a warrant and say, you know, I think somebody from my state committed a crime by coming here and having an abortion, some states are saying, you're not going to get that information from us. So there's going to be a lot of interesting and difficult tangling and wrangling between states to figure out who has the power to do what. That was Kim Mutcherson. She's a dean and professor of law at Rutgers University. Thanks for being here with us, Kim. Thanks so much. You're listening to All Things Considered. As President Biden heads to South Korea and Japan this week, officials in Seoul say a long-range missile test by North Korea could come soon. Pyongyang has already conducted 16 tests so far this year, but as NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports from Seoul, it is not just North Korea's growing arsenal of nuclear weapons that is giving foreign governments pause, it's the North's apparent willingness to use them. North Korea's latest missiles mounted on trucks rolled through Pyongyang's Kim Il-sung Square last month in a military parade. Leader Kim Jong-un, wearing a white uniform, addressed the event. The basic mission of our nuclear forces is to deter a war, he said. But our nuclear weapons can never be limited to the sole mission of deterring war. If any forces try to violate the fundamental interests of our state, he added, our nuclear forces will have to decisively accomplish their unexpected second mission. Pak Won Gon, a North Korea expert at Ihua Women's University in Seoul, says that based on North Korea's previous statements, those interests could include all sorts of things. The vital national interest for North Korea includes raising the question about this North Korea's uh, human rights violations and even the sanction on North Korea. Kim Jong-un's remarks suggest a shift away from his previous pledges not to use his nukes first. The U.S. does not rule out first use either. North Korea is building both short-range nuclear weapons to target U.S. and South Korean forces in Asia and long-range ones to threaten the U.S. mainland. Kim's sister, Kim Yo-jong, who is also a powerful official, added last month that Pyongyang could use these nukes not as a last resort, but at the beginning of a conflict to demoralize the enemy or simply to conserve the North's military strength. John Kyung-ju, a researcher at the Korea Institute for Defense Analyses, a government think tank in Seoul, says Kim Yo-jong's words shed new light on Pyongyang's strategy. The credibility of the threat due to their capabilities has increased in tandem with the credibility of their intentions. John believes the likelihood of Kim actually using his nukes is very low, unless he thinks he faces a conflict with U.S. and South Korean forces, which have an advantage in conventional arms. She says Pyongyang's ultimate goal remains to unify the peninsula under its own rule. It remains a very important goal and one that must be achieved over the very long term. But they must think that recognition as a nuclear state is a necessary first step towards that goal. While South Korea does not have nuclear weapons, it has plenty of missiles, some of which may be aimed right at Kim Jong-un. 
South Korea has been very clear that the intention of this force is to decapitate the North Korean leadership in a crisis, which is incredibly escalatory. Jeffrey Lewis is an arms control expert at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies in Monterey, California. So you have a situation where the parties to the conflict, South Korea and North Korea, both think that they are going to go first, and one of them is wrong about that. That's very destabilizing. North Korea's missile and nuclear tests will be high on the agenda of President Biden's summit meeting with President Yoon Song-yeol. Seoul says it even has a contingency plan ready in case the North conducts any tests during the summit. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. We have more news coming up on All Things Considered in just a few minutes. Small changes can make a big impact. WBUR's pop-up newsletter, Cooked, will help you understand the environmental impact of what you eat. Sign up and learn more at wbur.org cooked. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the Love Spring event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Crosstrek, citysidesubaru.com. And Mass Cultural Council, committed to supporting a diverse, inclusive, and an anti-racist cultural sector in the Commonwealth. Through their racial equity plan and grant making, Mass Cultural Council is working to better serve artists and organizations. Learn about their grants and services and the power of culture at MassCulturalCouncil.org. The Red Sox and Astros are back at Fenway tonight for a 6-10 game. It is the third and final game of the series. Nick Pavetta pitches. Celtics have the night off to shake off their loss from last night to the Miami Heat in the Eastern Conference Finals. Game two in Miami is tomorrow night. The two teams return to the, or come to the Garden on Saturday. In the forecast, partly cloudy tonight, down around 53. Could have showers tomorrow morning up until about noontime. Then cloudy skies, decidedly cooler, about 58 degrees tops. It's 449. Alexander Vindman, former National Security Council Director for European Affairs, says Russia's invasion of Ukraine marks the beginning of the end for Vladimir Putin. Vindman will discuss the war in Ukraine with Morning Edition host Rupa Shinoi at the WBUR Gala May 26th. Purchase your tickets to attend virtually at wbur.org gala. Thanks to our sponsors Frederica and Howard Stevenson and the Robert and Jennifer Waldron Civic Fund. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Emily Fang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The writer Jhumpa Lahiri is known for her stories about the immigrant experience, books like Interpreter of Maladies and The Namesake, rich fictional stories from and of two worlds. Well, Lahiri is less known for the other kind of writing. She does translation. For the last several years, the author and Princeton professor has been translating works from Italian to English, including her own work. And in a new essay collection titled Translating Myself and Others, Lahiri explores what draws her to translation. She joins me now. Jhumpa Lahiri, welcome back to All Things Considered. I'm glad to speak with you again. Thank you so much. Clear the air, if you would, on something that I gather annoys you, which is the notion that translation is somehow a lesser, a lesser form of writing than creative writing. 
Yes, it annoys me because what I've come to realize is that translation is is nothing but a form of writing. If anything, it's more of a pure form of writing, if you will, because it's language that is at the center of every choice that's being made. And there's so much creativity and imagination that goes into arriving at the best solution from the translator's point of view. Although take on the critics who will be listening and saying, but hold on, it's, it's, there's got to be less creativity, less imagination involved. You can't just change the story whole cloth if you're trying to be truthful to the original. Well, that is sort of another layer, if you will, another dimension of what a text is, right? I mean, it has the, if we're talking about fiction, we're talking about the characters, the plot, the details, the choices that the author makes is governed by language, right? So language is actually at the center of the text and translation is making that extremely clear. It's kind of like the words are all you've got, which is true of writing in any event, but the, the other choices melt away and it's just, you're just wrestling with the language, pure and simple. Is that something close to it? Yes, it, it is. And I would say that when you're just wrestling, just, I would say, you know, there's a lot with, in that with just, a caveat. Yeah. Yes, there's a lot in that just, but if when we're, when we're wrestling with language, we realize how infinite the playing field is. Hmm. I mean, I can hear, um, both that you enjoy it and that it's hard, that it, that it's demanding. Um, and having done some translation myself, that has certainly been my experience. Do you find it makes you a better writer in, in both languages that you're grappling with? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that my, my experience translating Italian literature made me a better writer in Italian because it exposed me to ways of constructing sentences, words, rhythms, turns of phrase, what have you, that I was only getting by virtue of translating amazing authors such as Domenico Starnone or Calvino or whomever. Translation embeds you inside of the text. And so you also learn things about all of these other aspects of fiction writing. So I want to apply all this to your novel, Whereabouts, um, which I got to interview you about when it came out last year. Um, when it came out in English, I should say, because you wrote it in Italian. The Italian title was Dove Mi Trovo. Um, and then you translated it from Italian into English, which I know you were really resisting. Why? Well, I resisted it many years ago when my first Italian book came out in other words, in English, because in that moment, I felt that I had to remain absolutely disciplined inside of English and, and sort of create the, the, the false notion that I only had one language, which of course I didn't and I never have, but I wanted all of the energy I had to remain inside of thinking, reading, and writing in Italian. By the time I wrote Dove Mi Trovo, my relationship to Italian had changed, you know, the roots were deeper, I trusted it more, and I felt that 
working in English was not going to somehow unravel the Italian that I was building and cultivating in my system, in my brain, uh, in my life. So you now have the original Italian. You have the work that you have translated that is in English that I read. Um, you've now gone back and made changes. So there's an, uh, what an updated Italian version. Um, does it feel like three separate books? How do you think of it? They were very subtle changes, but they are there. So I don't think of it as a, a different book at all, but I do think of it as, as a, you know, that it went through another round of uh, in the edit cycle. And I think what translating myself opened up was the fact that, and I, and I feel this very keenly now with my new book, which I've just finished in Italian, that self-translation is now for me the most rigorous and effective form of editing. Well, and I suppose it circles us back to where we began, which is your uh, strong view that the act of translation makes you a better writer of fiction. You, you know, on to go back to whereabouts, um, you're on you're on version three of self-editing, and you feel like it's getting better. It's helping. It. Yes, yeah. exactly. I mean, it's just constantly moving it toward the book you want it to be. It's very heady stuff, you know. I mean, but it's also destabilizing because, you know, one would like to think, okay, I wrote the book, it's done. It's out. It's in the bookstore. It's done. Let's forget about it. But that's kind of a myth in a way, you know, I mean, of course, we can always go back and we can always question why we structured a sentence a certain way, why we chose one adjective as opposed to another, uh, you know, and, and, and I think that self-translation insists on the fact that writing is really very open-ended and what i think is really wonderful about the art and craft of translation is that it calls for other translations and i mean every time someone translates something it's almost like an invitation or even a challenge to say you too could translate this let's see what you could do with this there's simply no such thing as a definitive translation I love that way of thinking about it. Well, may I wish you many more translations of this book and your others. They'll be perfect by, <laughs> the, time, you. by the time yeah, you're on it, version 17. It's a hall of mirrors, but uh, it's a new way of thinking about the literary enterprise. It really is. Yeah. Well, Jhumpa Lahiri, this has been yet again a pleasure. Thanks so much for talking to us. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's the author and translator, Jhumpa Lahiri. Her new essay collection is translating myself and others. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Angie, formerly Angie's List, dedicated to helping homeowners tackle home projects from everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at angie.com or on the Angie app. And from Mathnasium, Committed to boosting students' confidence, critical thinking, and math grades and scores with in-person or online instruction. Each student follows a customized learning plan. More at mathnasium.com. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Our nice day becomes a pretty decent night tonight. Partly cloudy, down around 53. Some spring showers tomorrow morning. Cloudy and surprisingly cool. May not make it out of the 50s tomorrow. Then back to the sunshine and the warm temperatures on Friday. Could reach about 78 degrees. Heads up for the weekend. Should top 90 degrees both Saturday and Sunday. At least that's the way it looks right now. 72 degrees in Boston. The time is 4.59. I'm here and now executive producer Carleen Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The alleged gunman in the Buffalo shootings appears to have kept detailed digital logs that show his descent into violence. He was part of this broader, decentralized, white supremacist movement that has gained such ground on the internet since at least 2016. It's Wednesday, May 18th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. What experts have found in his 600-page document coming up. In the first war crimes case of the invasion in Ukraine, a Russian sergeant is pleaded guilty for killing a Ukrainian civilian. Yesterday, the food delivery service Grubhub offered New Yorkers a free lunch promotion. It backfired as restaurants could not meet demand. We like selling food, but please help us out. Give us a bone. We'll have more people working. How customers and businesses were caught off guard coming up. The numbers from Wall Street way down today. Details just ahead. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. New York Governor Kathy Hochul has signed multiple executive orders today, strengthening the state's gun laws and domestic terrorism response. comes after a gunman in Buffalo killed 10 black people and injured three other people. Julian Forstadt with member station WSKG in upstate New York has more. Hochul's directive requires state police to file an extreme risk protection order with the court when they believe someone is a threat to themselves or others. If granted, the order prohibits the individual from purchasing or possessing a gun and requires them to surrender any they own. It is no longer permissive that when certain criteria or flags are out there, and we'll be very clear in identifying what those are, that they have to take the steps toward getting the extreme risk order of protection. An extreme risk protection order was not filed for the alleged Buffalo shooter after state police detained him for comments about murder-suicide last June. Hochul also signed an order that establishes a new domestic terrorism unit within the state's Division of Homeland Security and Emergency Services. For NPR News, I'm Jillian Forstadt. Results from yesterday's primary elections are showing something of a mixed bag for candidates supported by former President Donald Trump. Trump's pick for the GOP race for the U.S. Senate prevailed in North Carolina, Ted Budd easily winning there. But his pick in Pennsylvania, Dr. Mehmet Oz, remains locked in a tight fight with Dave McCormick. In the PA governor's race, another Trump-backed contender, Douglas Mastriano, defied even his own party's efforts to deny him the nomination. Mastriano spread lies about the 2020 vote count, but still won with a commanding lead. Health clinics are preparing for an influx of patients from other states where abortion could soon become illegal. Facilities are taking action after a leaked draft ruling from the Supreme Court signaled the court could overturn Roe v. Wade. 
Here's NPR's Will Stone. About half of states in the U.S. are certain or likely to ban abortion if Roe falls. That means millions who need an abortion will have to go to states where it will still be legal. California, Colorado, and Illinois are among them. Melissa Fowler is with the National Abortion Federation. The current infrastructure, the clinics, don't have the capacity to absorb all of these patients. That's why many clinics are adding more staff, expanding to new locations, and leaning on telehealth to help meet the demand. It's hard to know what the full impact will be just yet. According to data from the Guttmacher Institute in 2017, about a third of all abortions in the U.S. were in states where abortion could soon be illegal. Will Stone, NPR News. Latest government retail sales numbers show consumers still spending, just not necessarily in the same way they've done in the past. Consumers are spending money on restaurant meals and entertaining, but not so much at big box stores. It was one of the worst days on Wall Street in years. The Dow at one point ending nearly down 1,200 points. The Nasdaq fell 566. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A local food service company will provide fresh meals to nearly 50,000 Boston public school students under a new $17 million city contract. Mayor Michelle Wu says the deal with City Fresh Foods is the largest non-construction contract Boston has ever awarded to a certified black-owned business. City Fresh is Roxbury-based, and a majority of their employees are Boston residents meaning that the people feeding our communities are from our communities. The hard-earned taxpayer dollars that we are investing in this contract go right back into our communities. Last month, Mayor Wu filed a home rule petition to expand access to city contracts for minority and women-owned businesses. A study released in 2020 showed only a little more than 1% of city contracts were going to black and Latino-owned companies. Boston has a new city councilor. Gabriella Coletta took the oath of office at the start of this afternoon's weekly council meeting. I, Gabriella Coletta, do solemnly swear that I will support the Constitution of the United States, so help me God. Congratulations. After she was sworn in, Coletta addressed her constituents and fellow counselors. We are here to ensure a vibrant, resilient, and equitable city for everybody. We are here to bring the voices of those in our communities to the halls of power. Coletta represents East Boston, Charlestown, and the North End. She replaces Lydia Edwards, who was elected to the state Senate this winter. Gas prices in Massachusetts have hit another record high. AAA Northeast says the statewide average for regular is now $4.71 a gallon. That's up $0.05 cents since yesterday and $0.26 cents in one week. It is the eighth day in a row gas prices have hit a new record. Diesel has also never been more expensive in Massachusetts. The average price for diesel is now $6.41 a gallon. And Blue Line riders should prepare for another service disruption. The T said today it'll suspend train service on part of the line for a two-and-a-half-week period starting this Sunday. The suspension between Wonderland and Orient Heights will be in place so crews can repair and reopen a pedestrian bridge at Suffolk Downs. The announcement comes on the same day the Blue Line fully reopened. It had been shut down between airport and Bowdoin stations for more than three weeks for repairs on the Blue Line Tunnel underneath the harbor. In the forecast, a lovely day today. Overnight tonight, partly cloudy skies down around 53. Tomorrow, rain to wake up with. Clouds through the afternoon, relatively chilly, only about 58. And then hike to the upper 70s on Friday could reach the low 90s over the weekend. It is 72 degrees now in Boston at 5.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Capital One, offering their premium travel card, VentureX. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. 
On a Wednesday, it's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Emily Fang. Extremism researchers are scouring through the online footprint believed to be linked to the accused Buffalo gunman. Among the materials is a nearly 600-page printout of a log from an online chat platform. It reads like a kind of diary of the months leading up to the attack. NPR's domestic extremism correspondent Odette Youssef has done the hard work and read it and joins us now. And a warning, some may find elements of this this discussion disturbing. Odette, you've read this. What exactly is in this printed document? Well, Emily, it's a Discord chat log that's believed to be authored by the accused shooter uh, starting from about six months ago. And parts of it read kind of like a stream of consciousness. Uh, In it, the author shares very detailed information about how he acquired the equipment and weaponry for the attack and tested it out. Uh, He cuts and pastes a lot from outside sources when it comes to his racist and anti-Semitic ideologies. And then there was the mundane, uh, like his exercise routine and food intake. And this was just all posted online? Yes. It was one of several links that were shared before the attack. Now, Discord has taken down this server, but as we know, nothing truly disappears from the web. It's important to note that the author here wanted us to see this record, Emily. He wrote it, Mm -hmm. he edited it, and it presents his own narrative, and it should be taken with a high degree of skepticism. Who was the intended audience for this? Do we know who read this when it was online? Well, a Discord spokesperson says that nobody else saw this log until 30 minutes before the attack began, uh, when a small group of people, they said, quote, were invited to and joined the server. But this is actually just one of many questions that this record raises. Uh, Kisa White is at American University. She's an extreme extremism researcher who's looked at this log several times. Um, she told me she is most interested in information that is missing. Certain dates are missing. It's kind of like, why did he delete this whole section? What was there? Is it maybe someone was privy to like this information? Is it something that could have been like an intervention point? Intervention points. So did the log suggest that there were some red flags that others could have picked up on and intervened on? Well, the author of this document talks repeatedly about a desire to kill himself. Um, You know, there's a notable instance from a year ago where he was sent to an ER after indicating on a school assignment that he was ideating murder or suicide. Um, At that point, he says he was already thinking about an attack, and so he lied and said he was not suicidal, which is why he thinks he was able to buy guns. Um, That may have been an intervention point. Um, Another point, he describes a a disturbing episode where he chased and decapitated a cat and then writes that his mother helped him bury it. Uh, So there are lots of questions, of course, about his parents' awareness. Um, And finally, the author's preparations for this attack became so all-consuming, he stopped going to college classes, Emily, and ultimately disenrolled. So there are questions about whether school administrators missed a red flag as well. After this attack, people are asking, what differentiates people who commit violence versus others who don't, even if they all have similar extremist views? After reading this document, do you have any insight to that question? Well, you know, we're seeing this individual described as a lone wolf, which is often the case after terrorist attacks. Um, I spoke with Emerson Brooking at the Atlantic Council about this. And he said that it may well be that one person planned and executed this attack. We'll we'll know more 
as the investigation continues. But the ideas were not his own. He took from other people much of his motivation. And in that vein, he was part of this broader, decentralized, white supremacist and white ethno-nationalist movement that has gained such ground on the internet since at least 2016. So, you know, things like the belief that he internalized that violence was the only solution, uh, his mistrust of authorities like doctors who might have helped him, all those ideas are part of movements that we now see gaining greater acceptance in American society. And Pierre's domestic extremism correspondent, Odette Youssef. Thank you. You're welcome. If you or someone you know may be considering suicide, contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or the crisis text uh, the crisis text line, excuse me, by texting HOME to 741741. It's official. Sweden and Finland have applied to join NATO. The head of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, is calling it a historic moment, and the alliance is promising to fast-track the applications. But two new members would expand NATO's territory, also its clout, a fact not lost on Russia, which is threatening to retaliate. It will fall to our next guest to lead his country's next steps in all this and to navigate the very fast-changing security situation in Europe. Peter Hultqvist is the Defense Minister of Sweden. Today he is here in Washington for meetings with his U.S. counterpart, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. Peter Hultqvist, welcome to All Things Considered. Welcome to Washington. Thank you so much. Thank you. I have to say, this is a conversation I did not expect to be having, because you have been defense minister since 2014, and all those years you have opposed joining NATO. You were on Swedish TV just uh, late last year saying, quote, Sweden will never become a member of NATO as long as I am the minister of defense. You are still the minister of defense. Yes. Are you now fully on board with joining the alliance? Uh, yes, you must understand the context and, and the situation also, because um, Sweden and Finland, we, we decided to have a strategy to be military non-allied and mm-hmm. uh, at the same time develop uh, military planning beyond peace together in our two countries. And at the same time, we upgraded our military capability and uh, have um, to, to sign defense agreements with different countries. And uh, that worked, but we came until a situation when they started the war, the 24th of February this year. When Russia invaded uh, Ukraine, yeah. Yeah, that changed the situation. Should we still be be non-allied by ourselves? And uh, the result of that analysis was that yeah, we cannot do that. We must also be in NATO together with others. Okay. So I was going to ask, because I understand that obviously Russia invading Ukraine in February changed all kinds of things in Europe. But in terms of why it totally changed the calculus for you in Sweden, you don't have a border with Ukraine, you don't have a border with Russia. You're saying it was suddenly it felt like you might be all alone? You know, if we are out of NATO and all the other countries around us is in NATO. We will have a weaker situation in all these partnerships. And at the same time, when we are out of it in that new scenario, we will be more exposed to Russia. So we have a bigger risk towards Russia that they can make pressure on us when we are alone. 
How worried are you now that you've applied about retaliation from Russia? I can say that they they talked a, a lot about um, do something, and uh, they also violated our border now twice in a short in a short time. So they can do things, and uh, what we prepare for is uh, cyber attacks, hybrid attacks, disinformation. We have in a decision in Parliament said that we cannot exclude the risk for military attack etc etc so there is a broad spectrum they can sabotage they can undermine so we prepared for all these scenarios um you have a potential problem in turkey turkey is raising objections to uh, sweden and finland joining and um, the rules say you need unanimous agreement from all nato countries for it to happen how confident are you it will that your membership will be approved our ambition is to solve the problem with uh, with Turkey in a dialogue. I mean, the specific objection that I'm seeing is that Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, says, uh, his quote, Scandinavian countries are like guest houses for terrorist organizations. Is there any merit to his claims? Does Sweden have a problem with violent extremism that you need to deal with before joining NATO? Uh, I don't think so. And... Uh... And I have no comment to what Erdogan says. You are speaking to us, having just met today with U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. Can you give us a readout on the meeting? Did you come away with the understanding that the U.S. fully backs your joining NATO? Yes, I think we have a very warm welcome here in Washington. And we also have a very warm welcome from Secretary Austin and uh, we have the same view of the problem in Russia, that we have a conflict between authoritarian view of society and democratic view of the society, and um, that we have a challenge around against the European security order. And we have we have discussed all these um, things, and also what we should do with the support to Ukraine. That's very important. Right. Is there anything the U.S. can do? Is there anything you're asking the U.S. to do? to help um, in getting Turkey on board? Uh, what we have talked about, that is something between us. And uh, as I have said, I think we can solve it with a dialogue. Timeline? NATO says they will fast track your application. How fast is fast? Yeah, we can come back to, them, to, to that when we see the realities. As fast as possible is our ambition. and. Uh, when I met the House of Representatives and the Senate here in the U.S., it was very clear that they will do this as fast as possible for them. So they work with it now. Yeah. Is your working expectation, are we talking weeks, are we talking months? You have to, you have to go with that answer from them. I think that is the best. Uh, but um, I think they have a very high ambition. Peter Hultqvist, the Defense Minister of Sweden, and you're listening to All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on All Things Considered, after years of litigation and tumult, U.S. men and women soccer players have struck an agreement with the U.S. Soccer Federation that would pay players equally. 
That story and much more still ahead. Checking business news, a Boston-based food technology startup is branching out. Today, Motif Foodworks announced it will start to sell plant-based meat alternative products to restaurants and restaurant suppliers. Until now, it's only sold ingredients for the products to food manufacturers. Those products it will sell include animal-free burger patties and sausages. The numbers from Wall Street are coming up next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management. Committed to impact investing and building socially responsible investment portfolios for 25 years. Zevin.com slash WBUR. And Walnut Hill School for the Arts. Championing creativity. Arts and academics for grades 9 to 12. Apply for 2022-23. WalnutHillArts.org. A deep dive for Wall Street stocks today. The Dow dropped 1,165 points, more than 3.5% to close at 31,490. S&P fell 4% to close at 3,924. The Nasdaq sank 4 and 3 quarters percent to finally settle at 11,418. All the details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. It's 5.20. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the new engineering design workshop at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com slash MOS. And Boston Ballet, presenting Swan Lake, an iconic and beloved ballet, live May 26th through June 5th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. A nice day today, partly cloudy overnight tonight, down around 53, could have showers early tomorrow. And then cloudy skies through much of the day on the cooler side, only about 58 tops, but sunshine's back for Friday with highs in the upper 70s. The WBUR Gala Auction is live. Go behind the scenes at Zoo New England. Bid now at WBUR.org gala. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for businesses of any size it comes with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and mobility features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere. More at OOMA.com. And from Zoom, used by half a million businesses, a platform for phone, chat, workspaces, events, apps, and video, enabling real-time collaboration for teams around the globe. Zoom, how the world connects. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Emily Fang. In an overflowing Ukrainian courtroom today, a Russian soldier pleaded guilty to killing an unarmed civilian in the early days of the war. This is the first war crimes trial of the current conflict, and Ukraine says many more will follow. NPR's Greg Myrie was at the courthouse today in Ukraine's capital, Kyiv, and he joins us now. Hey, Greg. Hi, Emily. What did you see today in court? Yeah, there's huge interest in this case, but it was held in this tiny courtroom in Kiev. Journalists packed into the court, and they had to squeeze into a second courtroom next door to watch on video. And the case is also being live-streamed. One of the three judges asked this 21-year-old Russian Army sergeant, Vadim Shishamarin, if he was guilty of shooting dead a 62-year-old Ukrainian man just a few days after the war began in February. This sergeant, dressed in a blue and gray hoodie and responding from inside this glass box, said, quote, yes, fully yes. Uh, 
Now, he didn't say much more, but a Ukrainian prosecutor laid out the case. He said several Russian troops saw this older Ukrainian man on the side of the road in a village in the country's northeast. Now, this man was on his cell phone, and the Russians suspected he might be revealing their position, so the sergeant shot him with an automatic rifle, according to the prosecutors. Have the Ukrainians said how they captured this Russian soldier, and have they presented evidence on how they linked him to this specific shooting you just described? No, the Ukrainians haven't said exactly how they detained him, but they released a video earlier this month in which they were questioning him, and he said he was responsible for the shooting. Now, we should note that prisoners of war are not supposed to be put on public display. Also, whenever a case is built on a suspect's confession, especially in one like this in the middle of a very hot war, it does raise some questions about whether it was voluntary. But the case continues Thursday, and prosecutors say they will present evidence tying the sergeant to the killing, and a sentence could range from 10 years to life. Did this Russian soldier have a defense lawyer? Did that person say anything? Yes, the Russian sergeant does have a defense lawyer. He's a Ukrainian, and he has said that he is concerned about the rights here. He says he wants to show that Ukraine operates in a way that Russia does not. This is unusual, no, to have a war crime trial taking place while the war is still going on. Highly unusual. You know, the basic model was set after World War II when the Nazis were put on trial in Nuremberg, Germany shortly after the war. The nations that won the war, including the Soviet Union, prosecuted top-level figures in the Nazi regime. Uh, But Ukraine says that waiting to prosecute after a war poses a number of challenges. Years later, evidence may be long gone. Witnesses can be hard to track down. So Ukraine's government says it's identified more than 11,000 possible Russian war crimes, and it wants to investigate now when evidence is fresh and witnesses can be located. And Russia, for its part, says its troops have not harmed civilians, despite the overwhelming evidence. And a Kremlin spokesman said of the court case today that it was, quote, simply fake and staged. Are there any risks to prosecuting these war crimes amid the conflict? Yes, there are some risks and some challenges. I think capturing the suspects will certainly be the biggest obstacle. Uh, But this war is being documented in unprecedented ways. Uh, We've never seen so many videos and so much social media from a war zone. Uh, Ukraine also says it's using technology like facial recognition software to help identify and track down suspects. And the International Criminal Court at The Hague says it's already sent more than 40 people to Ukraine, the largest group it's ever seen on a single mission. Now, neither Ukraine nor Russia belong to the ICC, but Ukraine has welcomed the investigators. Thank you. That's NPR's Greg Myrie in Kyiv, Ukraine. My pleasure. U.S. soccer is celebrating what it calls a historic moment for the sport. The Federation announced today an agreement that will provide equal pay for the highly decorated women's national team, something the women have worked toward in recent years. Starting next month, the men and women's teams will be paid the same for all competitions, including the World Cup. NPR's Tom Goldman reports. The women's quest for equal pay has been mired in legal disputes and often bitter words between players and the U.S. Soccer Federation. But today, the talk was about unity and triumph. Cindy Parlo-Cohn is the president of U.S. Soccer. I'm really proud of what we've achieved together. 
what they, U.S. soccer and the unions for the men's and women's national teams, achieved is this, collective bargaining agreements guaranteeing equal pay through identical economic terms. Appearance fees and bonuses for all games and competitions will be the same. There'll be a 50-50 split of broadcast, sponsorship, and ticket revenue, and equal working conditions, including travel, accommodations, and playing venues. Perhaps most significantly, a first-of-its-kind provision in global soccer to pool and share World Cup prize money. That's long been an obstacle to equal pay since FIFA, soccer's international governing body, has paid much less in bonuses for the Women's World Cup. At the last women's event, the team split $30 million in total prize money. At this year's Men's World Cup in Qatar, the teams will divvy up between $400 and $450 million. U.S. soccer always said its hands were tied because it couldn't control how much money FIFA allotted for each tournament. And that's where Parlo Cohn says the U.S. men's team came up big. Because this advancement doesn't happen without the men championing this. The men essentially agreed to give up money so the women World Cup winners in 2015 and 2019 could get more. On a video conference this afternoon, men's team player Walker Zimmerman said the men ultimately realized there wasn't going to be a way forward to an overall deal without equal World Cup prize money. Sure, there was a potential chance of making less money. But we also believe so much in the women's team. We believe in uh, the whole premise of equal pay. And ultimately, that was a big driving force for us, was to do something historic and try and do this together. Parlo Cohn says the time was ripe for collaboration between U.S. soccer and both national teams. The men's labor contract was being hashed out, and the women were coming up for renewal. The result left Parlo Cohn beaming. You know, I have have been in this for over 20 years, um, fighting for equal pay. Parlo Cohn was a member of the fabled U.S. women's team that won the 1999 World Cup in a penalty shootout. That team was dubbed the 99ers. The 99ers team has a text stream and just the messages coming in from um, my teammates who started this fight, um, who I learned from. And it's just such a proud moment to be a leader in this, to be the first to do it. She and others hope it spreads throughout world soccer, throughout sport. Better, if not equal pay, is an issue for many other female professional athletes. WNBA star Brittany Griner's ongoing detention in Russia has prompted discussions of how players in that league are paid. For now, U.S. soccer is celebrating a breakthrough, one that Parlo Cohn hopes will bring more investment and a chance to benefit the sport from the elite level to its grassroots. Tom Goldman, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR, how fossil fuel projects in the U.S. are damaging global efforts to limit climate change. That story is coming up on WBUR. In sports, an early start time this evening at Fenway Park for the Red Sox. Nick Pavetta throws the first pitch at 6-10 against the Houston Astros' Luis Garcia. It'll be the rubber match of the three-game series. The forecast, partly cloudy tonight, down around 53. For tomorrow, showers early, clouds through the day, about 58 degrees tops.
It's election season, and this week we're talking with voters in two fast-changing Georgia counties. Both are populous enough to decide winners in the big state. Georgia is growing so much, and it will continue to grow and prosper. We just have to ensure that that prosperity is available for everyone. A look to the midterms in Georgia, tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow, starting at 5 on WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. Finland and Sweden today submitted their applications to join NATO, spurred by Russia's war in Ukraine. This despite strong opposition from Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who claims the two countries are friendly with Kurdish militants and pose a security risk. White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. This is a historic event, a watershed moment in European security. Two nations with a long tradition of neutrality, will be joining the world's most powerful defensive alliance. Sullivan says he's confident that Turkey's concerns can be addressed. A senior defense official says the Ukrainian military is already using most of the U.S.-provided artillery in combat with Russian forces in eastern Ukraine. The official says Russian progress remains uneven and incremental, and that Moscow has failed so far to significantly interrupt the supply of Western arms and materials. One of the former Minneapolis police officers charged in the death of George Floyd pleaded guilty on manslaughter charges in state court today. Minnesota Public Radio's John Collins reports it's part of a plea deal. Former officer Thomas Lane pleaded guilty to aiding and abetting second-degree manslaughter. Prosecutors will dismiss another charge of aiding and abetting murder in exchange for his guilty plea. They're recommending a 36-month sentence for him. That's less than state sentencing guidelines call for. Lane and two other defendants were convicted in federal court in February of violating 46-year-old George Floyd's constitutional rights. The other two former officers charged in Floyd's death are scheduled to go on trial in state court next month. Former officer Derek Chauvin, who kneeled on Floyd's neck for more than nine minutes in May 2020, is serving 22 and a half years in prison for Floyd's murder. For NPR News, I'm John Collins in Minneapolis. Wall Street sharply lower by the bell. The Dow down 3.5%. The Nasdaq down 4.7%. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts lawmakers unveiled a bill today that aims to make child care more affordable for lower and middle income families. It would also expand grants to child care providers and raise pay for early educators. WBUR's Yasmin Ammer has more. Massachusetts is one of the most expensive states for child care. An infant spot costs around $20,000 per year. On the other hand, early educators are leaving the field at record numbers because of low pay. The new bill's co-sponsor, State Senator Jason Lewis, says it would make longer-term investments in early education. This really is a high priority for state leaders, both in the legislature, you know, the administration, uh, among business leaders and community leaders. This is a high priority right, in a way that it maybe hasn't been in the past. The legislature is also considering a separate proposal that would boost funding for early education next year by more than a third. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Ammer. Doctors, nurses, and other employees at Mass General Hospital rallied today in support of preserving abortion rights nationwide. Jessica Haber is an internist at MGH and professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. She took part in today's rally and says it's important to speak out before the Supreme Court issues a final decision on Roe versus Wade. Just because it's not an, an issue here where we live doesn't mean it's not an important issue. 
as healthcare providers, we feel very strongly that our voices need to be heard and stating how abortion care is health care and access is essential. Haber says Massachusetts healthcare professionals are concerned about the demand on the healthcare system if there's an influx of women who come to the state to access abortion services if the court strikes down Roe versus Wade. Massachusetts U.S. Senator Ed Markey is urging federal regulators to investigate the marketing of assault style weapons to children. He and 10 fellow U.S. senators, including Elizabeth Warren, have sent a letter to the Federal Trade Commission. They say gun makers are engaged in marketing tactics that are dangerous and irresponsible. They're making the call after mass shootings in Buffalo and Orange County, California over the weekend. Specifically, Markey singles out gun dealer We One Tactical, whose website includes images and videos of children holding assault-style rifles. The company has not responded to a request for comment. In the forecast, should be partly cloudy tonight. Lows about 53. Could have showers early tomorrow up until just about noontime, followed by cloudy skies. Cooler tomorrow, only reaching 58 degrees tops, but then back to the sunshine and the warmer temperatures on Friday, rising to the upper 70s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, committed to helping businesses streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Subaru, with the 2022 Subaru Crosstrek, an SUV with standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and an available 182-horsepower engine. Love. It's what makes Subaru, Subaru. And from the Lemelson Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Emily Fang. Here's a new phrase for you, carbon bombs. An investigation by The Guardian identified nearly 200 oil and natural gas drilling projects all over the world that are worthy of such a title. These projects on their own would pump enough planet heating gases into the atmosphere to take the planet way over the Paris Climate Accord's limit of 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming. And a huge chunk of these projects are in the United States. Oliver Millman is a reporter for The Guardian who co-wrote this report. Welcome, Oliver. Hi there. Good to be with you. So carbon bombs. That sounds terrifying. Can you tell us more about what these are? Yeah, so these essentially are major oil and gas projects that are already underway in various stages of planning and execution around the world. 195 of them are identified in this research that we cite in our reporting. And for the purposes of the research, it identifies carbon bombs as projects that would result in at least a billion tonnes of carbon dioxide emissions over their lifetimes, which is a huge amount. A billion tonnes is about three times the annual emissions of the United Kingdom, and there's 195 of them. Wow. Tell us more about the scale of these planned oil and gas drilling projects in the U.S. that you uncovered. Yeah, so a good proportion of these projects are happening in the U.S. and indeed in some of the real kind of hotspots of drilling that we see in the U.S. already, there's going to be a kind of ramping up of oil and gas exploration and extraction. So if you think about the Permian Basin, this kind of vast geologic formation that sits under West Texas, that's going to be a huge source of new drilling 
it's expected by analysts to be a record year in 2022 in terms of new drilling sites in the Permian Basin. There's also drilling in uh, the Marcellus Shale, which kind of runs up along the Appalachians, other places along the, the Midwest uh, and in the Gulf of Mexico too. So in total, in aggregate, these projects will release 140 billion metric tons of planet heating gases over their lifetimes, unless they are curtailed in some way. In terms of oil and gas, how does the U.S. compare to other nations in terms of new projects? I mean, it's pretty sizable. It's got the most of any country. It's about a fifth of the global total. You've got dozens and dozens of new projects, big and small, around the country. What will happen in the U.S. will impact the world. Decisions made about these projects will determine the climate for generations to come around the planet. If 140 billion metric tons of CO2 is released from the U.S., that will have global ramifications for many years to come. The U.S. has officially rejoined the Paris Climate Accord, which means that we've committed to achieving net zero in all emissions by 2050. But is that even possible if these projects are talking about go ahead? These carbon bomb projects, if they go ahead, will blow the world far beyond that and indeed far beyond two degrees Celsius, maybe even more with all the other sources of greenhouse gas emissions that happen around the world. So there is this huge disconnect, this kind of jarring lack of alignment between what governments are promising and what industry is doing, obviously, under the auspices of government regulations. So we're making a lot of promises as a planet on dealing with climate change. But in terms of the reality of what's happening, we're moving rapidly in the wrong direction. So why is there this disconnect between what our stated goals are for cutting greenhouse gas emissions and what industry is planning? So a lot of it is down to timescales. So governments can quite quickly promise to cut uh, emissions, but over a, a long period of time, say net zero by 2050, uh, but they're still handing out permits for, for drilling and the motivations for oil and gas companies are short-term profits for shareholders. There is also the huge political cloud to the fossil fuel industry. It's very powerful in terms of its lobbying and its voice in Washington, D.C. and other uh, global capitals. So um, they have a kind of tight grip over our economy, the way uh, the world functions. Just think about the, the kind of price rises in gasoline that have happened due to the Ukraine war. This is due to our dependence on fossil fuels. We're kind of closely entwined with fossil fuels and it's actually quite difficult to wrench ourselves free from them quickly as we need to. That's Oliver Millman, environment reporter at The Guardian. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yesterday was a bad day for Grubhub. The food delivery service launched a free lunch promotion for people in New York City. Spoiler alert, it backfired. Basically what they offered was that if you placed an order on the app between the hours of 11 a.m. to 2 p.m., you would get $15 of credit to use towards getting yourself a free lunch. That is our producer, Manuela Lopez Restrepo. Yesterday, she tried to use the promotion to order from one of her favorite local spots in Brooklyn. But the process wasn't easy. When I first opened the Grubhub app, it seemed like everything had either crashed or the restaurants had decided to disclose themselves as not delivering. After trying different methods, she was finally able to put in her order a salad and a veggie burger. The order was confirmed, a driver was assigned, and then the order was canceled. When I looked into the fine print of why I hadn't received my order, it told me that the merchant had failed to confirm the order. Scores of people had similar problems. Grubhub said at one point, 6,000 orders a minute were coming through their app. And eventually it crashed. 
Our producer wanted to find out what went wrong with the promotion from the restaurant's perspective. She sent us these voice memos on her way to talk to folks at Toad Style BK. It's the same restaurant she tried to order from yesterday. Abby Horitz is the line cook there. She says she was confused about the sudden influx of orders. We're getting six tickets at a time yeah. printing, and then tried to pause it for 30 minutes and then more just kept coming in. In addition to the promotion, which they say came as a surprise, they also had a health inspection, a produce delivery, and a new team member coming on board. They were overwhelmed. And then, out of the blue, they started seeing the orders getting canceled. With all those cancellations, they ended up having a lot of orders that no one picked up. Tyler Murfeld co-owns Toad Style BK with his wife, Jillian Camera. He says Grubhub didn't directly tell them about the promotion. Uh, totally would welcome this kind of promotion. It's uh, awesome to get so much business. Right. But we would have liked the foresight. We could have had more people working. Yeah. It was busier than super, the Super Bowl. So. Yeah. Murfeld's restaurant and his guests were not the only ones caught off guard. Some Grubhub users complained online that it took more than six hours for their food to arrive. We reached out to Grubhub's team about their promotion. In an email statement, they told us that to help make sure restaurants get the food picked up, the company says they added driver incentives. They also said no one could anticipate the influx of orders, but they were able to fulfill 450,000 of the promotional lunches they called that a quote win-win for businesses and diners. All over the country, parents are facing baby formula shortages. They want to know when they can expect to find more formula on store shelves. But they also want to know how things got this bad. On the next Consider This podcast, we will delve into the reasons behind the formula shortage, plus the policies and expectations that make it harder to feed babies. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. How old should you have to be to buy a gun? It's a question on many Americans' minds after another mass shooting by a young man. In this case, the 18-year-old charged in the killing of 10 people in Buffalo last Saturday. And as NPR's Martin Costi reports, it's becoming a question for the courts. When it comes to people between the ages of 18 and 21, gun laws are all over the map. They can't buy handguns from licensed dealers, though private sales are allowed in most states. And as to long guns, that's shotguns, rifles, AR-15s, there's no federal ban, but some states have recently put up restrictions. Adam Winkler is a UCLA law professor who writes about gun policy, and he says the rules for young adults are in flux right now. Well, there's a big fight brewing over these restrictions on guns for 18, 19, and 20-year-olds, because the courts are in the midst of a great expansion of Second Amendment gun rights. On one side, you have states such as Florida, Washington, and California, which have responded to mass shootings by raising the age to buy certain rifles to 21. On the other side, you have gun rights groups, which are challenging those limits. 
Just last week, a panel of three federal judges in California overturned that state's new higher age for semi-automatic rifles, though the state may appeal. I hope they appeal it. It makes sense to appeal. I mean, this is a fight that is worth fighting. And again, look what happened in Buffalo. Anthony Portentino is the state senator who authored California's ban. When it comes to guns, he thinks it's just common sense to draw a distinction between 18 and 21. You have to be 25 to run a car. You have to be 21 to drink. Why would we put a semi-automatic rifle in the hands of a teenager? But to people in that age group who own guns, this feels like discrimination. Well, I would point out that drinking and driving a car aren't constitutionally protected. Evan Jones is a gun enthusiast in Texas who just recently turned 22. 18 to 21 year olds, they have all the same rights and responsibilities as any other adult. And it's not fair to single out and deprive them of one right. But historically, the courts do limit rights where the state can show a compelling interest. In this case, there's the evidence from brain science. Megan Ranney is an emergency physician and academic dean at the School of Public Health at Brown University. We know from lots of studies around motor vehicles and drinking and other common types of injury that this age group is still developing its frontal lobe, impulse control, judgment, and is more likely to take risky actions that lead to injuries. But Matt LaRosiere says brain science doesn't justify taking away the right to self-defense with a gun from a whole age group. He's with the Firearms Policy Coalition, which led the challenge to California's law. He argues that younger adults may actually rely on that right more than older people. There are plenty of young adults in America who are quite often lower income people or otherwise disadvantaged, not just financially. And those are the same people who are most likely to be violently victimized. They are thus the same people who are most likely to need a effective mechanism to protect themselves. This legal tension has yet to be resolved. Just last year, a federal judge upheld Florida's new age-based law limiting gun sales. But he also called that age question, quote, a constitutional no man's land. We may get some more clarity on this from a pending Supreme Court case about gun control in New York. That case also weighs individual rights against societal risk. And if the ruling is broad enough, legal experts say it could tell us how the new conservative majority might come down on the idea of limiting gun rights by age. Martin Costi, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Some clouds around tonight falling to about 53. Could have morning showers and plenty of gray for most of the day. Tomorrow may not even make it to 60 degrees. Then a change in the weather on Friday. Sunny and warm. Temperatures in the upper 70s tops. Coming up tomorrow on WBUR is All Things Considered. 18-year-old Svetlana Poklitskaya fled the war in Ukraine and came to Massachusetts, the town of Sharon, to stay with family. It's different here, she says. For one thing, no guns in sight. When you uh, move for, from a place where people uh, are going with guns on the street, you can trust no one, and uh, then you move here, and you see a lot of people that smiling. She wants to return home one day as a leader in a post-war free Ukraine. Hear more tomorrow on WBR's All Things Considered. It's 549. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Newton at Home, a nonprofit helping members stay in their own homes as they age. Learn more at newtonathome.org.
Former U.S. National Security Council Director for European Affairs Alexander Vindman said Russia's invasion of Ukraine marks the beginning of the end for Vladimir Putin. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Vindman will join me for a candid conversation about the war in Ukraine at the WBUR Gala on May 26th. Limited tickets remain at wbur.org slash gala. Thanks to our sponsors, the Gammon Family Charitable Foundation and Dinah Beekner-Vischer. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Emily Fang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Jakub Yusuf Orlinski says he was an active kid growing up in Poland, like... Rollerblading uh, in a very extreme way in skate parks. I all did all those tricks. I did skiing with tricks, snowboarding, capoeira, acrobatics, uh, skateboarding. Also, breakdancing. He still does that, actually. I just did a little session right before our talk here. Orlinski is 31 now. He has a career touring the world, not as a professional breakdancer, not as a trick skier, but as an opera singer. He has made several albums of Baroque music. This month, he released an album of classic Polish songs called Farewells. And yes, Jakub Josef Orlinski speaks in a bass baritone. As you can hear, I speak quite low. But he sings much higher in falsetto. He is an internationally renowned countertenor. And that decision can also be traced back to his childhood when he was in a choir and they needed someone to sing the high notes. We made the lottery and I lost that lottery, you know? So I lost the lottery with my friend, me and my friend Piotr. We were the youngest ones. So I think that somebody manipulated those, uh, this, this lottery. But then I actually understood how much satisfaction it brings me to actually use that part of my voice, to use this register. Because with this register, I felt from the very beginning that I'm very well connected with my emotional system. I don't know, with my heart, with my soul, with my brain. It does feel like we are having a moment for countertenors right now in opera. There are more roles, more prominent roles. Why do you think? To be honest, a few decades ago, basically everybody said like, oh, those are the very pure voices, but very fragile, very soft and not loud enough to be in the theater. And that changed in very, very recent times because we have now voices like Filip you know, Zaruski, uh, Andreas Scholl, Pejun Meta, Franco Fagioli. All of those singers not only developed their own technique to show the world what is possible with that kind of voice, but also brought it to actually, let's say, a mainstream of classical music. And so they opened the doors for people like me. And I think it is a fascinating um, phenomenon because it has so many different effects it can do. Plus, of course, the fascination about Baroque music, which, in my opinion, is the pop music of their time. So it's super fun and cool. I read that you have a, a very soft spot for Handel the Baroque composer. I'm just trying to figure out, I mean, Handel is, it's the canon. It's as well-received, well-established as you can get. And it's music that was written and set down and hasn't changed in four centuries. How do you, in 
2022. How do you find freedom in that? How do you give it life now? <laughs> no, because it's absolutely freeing to sing Baroque music and especially Handel because I sing it quite a lot. So I developed my own style of singing Handel. You understand the lyrics, you know the placement in the opera, so you kind of try to send the message with the few words that the composer gives you. And then you can color it, you can filter this character which is written through your own experience, through your own life, which is now, it's in 2022. Of course, I did study the style and the ornamentation and the rhetorical figures because you have to have the knowledge. Because I do believe that if you know the rules, you know, if you break them, then you know what you're breaking. And it's a choice. It's an argument. It's a very clear and argumented decision. And that's what I try to do. How does the breakdancing fit into all of this? You know, I am completely in love with that culture, like hip hop culture. It's great. And it kind of gave me another place where I can express myself. It's really freeing, like music, with your interpretation. In breaking, there is no right or wrong. Like you can do certain moves in thousands of ways and nobody can tell you that this is wrong. Talk to me about the new album. Um, this is all Polish composers, Polish classics. Some of them are gorgeous. I had never heard them before. They're not many of them well-known outside Poland. Why was this something you wanted to record, these particular classics? To be honest, I always wanted to record an album with Michał because Michał is my pianist, but also... This is Michał Biel, who's uh, on the album. Exactly. And we decided, okay, let's spread some some Polish music. And we decided to choose only Polish music because in Poland, those are very famous composers. Everybody, when they start uh, studying singing, they basically sing those songs. And I now have this ability that I build up my brand a little bit more, so it will be exposed to more people. You gonna do this forever? I saw you said recently you don't want to be singing countertenor when you're 60. Yes, definitely not. So um, I am loving what I'm doing for now because I love traveling, I love meeting new people, I love kind of getting to know new cultures, new places. And I love sharing. I love sharing through the music, through my interpretations. Uh, so I think I am going to do it for quite a bit, but definitely not forever. I just, I just think there are so many other things that I feel like I want to do also. Like, I don't know, building furniture from wood. I am a woodworker. I would love to be a woodworker because I'm not yet. <laughs> the next chapter. Yeah. 
I have to say, you sound really happy. It's so rare and so refreshing to, set, to, to speak to someone who's really happy doing what they're doing, who's actually just having a ton of fun. I am kind of happy to hear that but, and sad at the same time that it's so rare because I think people should be happy. I know that this, like, we are living in a very difficult time and so there are thousands of things to be said about, but we have to be happy from time to time, at least a little bit. <laughs> Well, I have been very happy to speak with you. Thank you for making the time. Thank you so much for having me. That is countertenor and breakdancer Jakub Yusuf Orlinski. His new album is titled Farewells. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate. At Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina, or from all agents. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies. At fidelity.com wealth, investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. This is 90.9 WBUR. Our nice day becomes a decent night tonight. Partly cloudy, down around 53 for a low. Some spring showers tomorrow morning. Cloudy and surprisingly cool. May not make it out of the 50s tomorrow. Then back to the sun and the warmer temperatures Friday. Highs up around 78. Heads up for the weekend. It should top 90 degrees both days. At least that's the way it looks right now. This note, a dry air mass combined with gusty winds today are making conditions hospitable to fire, especially away from the coastline. It's 5.59. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet, presenting Swan Lake, an iconic and beloved ballet, live May 26th through June 5th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The U.S. will send Ukraine another $215 million in emergency food to help ease the humanitarian crisis that's resulted from Russia's invasion. Coming up, Secretary of State Blinken talks at the U.N. about the growing global food crisis. It's Wednesday, May 18th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, many African students who are fleeing the war in Ukraine and heading to Poland have found the country much less welcoming to them than to Ukrainians. If they were Ukrainians, they would have access to free medical care, the social security number. Those who have children would have access to monthly stipends. We'll hear from some of those students. Parents and kids in Buffalo, black and white, talk about the grocery store shooting and how they're handling their grief. And Wall Street heads south. These stories and much more coming up. It's 6.01. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. In Kharkiv, Ukraine, the mayor is asking residents to move out of underground metro stations. NPR's Jason Bobian reports thousands of residents have been taking shelter in the station since the start of the Russian invasion in February. The mayor of Kharkiv says the city is now safe enough for residents to leave the metro stations and that a room in a hostel will be offered to anyone who needs one. Kharkiv came under heavy shelling early in the war. Some shells continue to hit the edges of the city, but the mayor says the situation is far better than even a couple of weeks ago. Buses are running again for the first time since the invasion. Kharkiv's metro stations, however, remain packed with people sleeping on the platforms and inside rail cars. Some lost their homes to shelling. Others are too afraid to go home. But as part of restarting life in Ukraine's second largest city, the mayor says it's time for the subway to resume normal operations. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Kharkiv. The White House official leading the COVID response says there has been strong demand for additional free at home COVID tests. As NPR's Tamara Keith reports, infections are on the rise. White House COVID response coordinator Dr. Ashish Jha says there are about 100,000 new coronavirus cases being reported every day, but many positives on at home tests aren't getting counted. What that means is we're clearly undercounting uh, infections, undercounting cases. Uh, there's a lot of infections across America. Using rapid tests before large gatherings or before visiting a vulnerable relative, Jaw says, is key to slowing the spread. He said that's a big reason why the White House is letting every household order eight additional free tests to be shipped to their homes. Uh, this opened up on Monday. Oh, about almost eight and a half million households across the country have ordered that next round of tests. They can be ordered from covidtests.gov. Tamara Keith, NPR News. The U.S. Soccer Federation and the unions representing the women's and men's teams have agreed to a historic deal that achieves equal pay. NPR's Joe Hernandez reports the collective bargaining agreement ends a contentious pay gap that had seen female players earn less. Two new contracts, one with the men's team and one with the women's team, will have identical economic terms. That means the male and female players will be paid equally for all competitions, including the FIFA World Cup. The U.S. Soccer Federation says it's the first in the world to equalize World Cup prize money. In February, the Federation announced it would implement equal pay rates for both teams in response to a lawsuit brought by a group of female players in 2019. They argued they were paid less than their male counterparts despite their better performance on the field. Joe Hernandez, NPR News. One of the worst days on Wall Street in nearly two years for the Dow. Blue chips fell 1,164 points today. The Nasdaq dropped 500. 166 points. The S&P was down 165 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. Inflation is causing infrastructure improvement costs to soar in Massachusetts. Today, State Transportation Secretary Jamie Tesler told the State Transportation Board that the project to replace the Mass Turnpike Viaduct near Boston University is now expected to cost $2 billion. That's $300 million more than estimates from last fall. Tesler says the cost to replace the Bourne and Sagamore bridges over Cape Cod's canal could reach up to $4 billion. That's more than double the initial estimates. Local small business owners say inflation is having a ripple effect on their operations. Christopher Carlosi says this is the state director of the National Federation of Independent Businesses. He says in many cases, the small business owner is forced to pass along the higher cost of fuel and supplies to the consumer. If they are a florist or a pizza shop or a restaurant, 
it's costing them more to deliver that pizza or deliver those flowers. It's costing them more for the the products that they're buying to make that uh, food that they're delivering. Carlosi says many small businesses are also struggling to find qualified applicants and fill positions. Boston High School students interested in the art scene are in luck. A summer program that pairs students with local cultural organizations will extend its programming for another two years. WBR's Lauren Williams has more. Mapping out a career in the art world is notoriously difficult. Ed Vesters, a school improvement nonprofit, has partnered with Bloomberg Philanthropies to help students explore the creative industry. Ed Vesters Vice President Ruth Mercado Zizzo says that the impacts of the program are long-lasting. We're fortunate that the work sites that we work with all have a commitment as part of their mission to really mentor and help train young people and prepare them for the workforce, uh, whether they decide to go into the arts or not. 45 students will be selected to work with theater companies and other cultural groups. Interested Boston Public School students can apply through their school career specialist. For 90.9 WBUR and Lauren Williams. A Roxbury-based food service provider has landed a contract to make meals for Boston public schools. Mayor Michelle Wu announced the $17 million deal today with City Fresh Foods. The mayor said it's the largest contract Boston has ever given a certified black-owned business outside of construction work. Boston public school officials say the deal will provide fresh food to students and support local workers as well. Should be partly cloudy overnight tonight. Lows about 53. Could have some showers tomorrow morning, up until about noontime anyway, followed by cloudy skies. A lot cooler tomorrow, only about 58 degrees for a high. And Friday, back to the sunshine and the warm temperatures rising to about 70 degrees. Still 72 degrees now in the Boston area at 607. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at asylum.news. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Poland. More than 6 million people have fled Ukraine since Russia invaded. Poland has welcomed a majority of them, providing work visas, social services, and cash to people who are escaping war with almost nothing. But not all those who've left Ukraine are Ukrainian. And some citizens of African countries have found that the doors of Europe are much less open to them. We wanted to help people of color. So we were accommodating Ghanaians, Cameroonians, Gambians, and, you know, people from everywhere. Tade Daniel Omotosho moved to Poland from Nigeria 15 years ago for school. He has dual citizenship, and he's raising three daughters in Warsaw. Last year, he became chairman of Poland's Nigerians in Diaspora organization, and he figured the job would mostly be community building. What we should be doing normally as an organization should be just bringing Nigerians together, organizing events, um, of course, business-related stuff, community development. Not this thing we're doing here. This thing we're doing here is a humanitarian relief effort for African students who were living in Ukraine when Russia attacked. In late February, Omoto show heard that black people trying to flee the war were getting stopped, harassed, and even detained at the border of Poland. So he made the five-hour drive east from Warsaw to help whoever he could find. Sometimes he'd see a black person at the border and just pull over the car to ask if they needed anything. He posted his phone number online, saying Africans seeking help should give him a call. That went viral, like viral. I mean, I, I got people sending me my own number. Like, if you need help, these are the numbers to call. <laughs> you know, so it was like, oh my God. 
He'd post on Twitter, albeit this border crossing at this time. You can't imagine. It was so difficult. Um, so at some point, each time I get back home, I just drop my phone, give it to my wife, and then she helps with just replying every single of those messages. His organization procured a bus and found volunteers to help shuttle people to Warsaw. They put African students in donated Polish hotel rooms and used vouchers from Airbnb. They got donations from a GoFundMe campaign, and people sent money through PayPal. After a few weeks, the acute emergency started to transform into a more long-term challenge. And now, it's been months. There is no help from the government yet, I mean from the Polish government yet. Tell me what Ukrainians in Poland have access to that the students here do not have access to because they're from African countries. Two words. White privilege. <laughs> White privilege, that's just it, you know. So if they were Ukrainians, they would have access to free medical care. Um, they would have access to the social security number. Those who have children would have access to monthly sort of stipends. I could imagine somebody saying, well, Ukrainians have no country to go back to because there's a war. But if you're from Nigeria, you could go back to Nigeria. What would you say to that? Again, white privilege, because you do not have an idea what it takes to leave Nigeria and go study in Ukraine. Some of them, their parents borrowed money. Some of them, their parents just say, OK, this is all I've got on me. I'm going to make sure I'm going to send you to school. So it's not just so easy to say, go back to Nigeria. We asked the Polish government why they don't give Nigerians who fled Ukraine the same benefits as Ukrainians, and they didn't respond. And so the African students who fled to Poland are in limbo. Many of them are living in a rented two-story house surrounded by forests on the outskirts of Warsaw. This is a joyful home. Chizoba Joy Oche is officially the general secretary of the Nigerians in Diaspora Organization of Poland. Unofficially, she's the house mother here. They are happy people. Oh, are you sad? No, So, <laughs> 25 African students are staying at this house right now. Many more have passed through since the war started. We have somebody that have arrived like 72 hours ago. Most of the students here are in their late teens. They cram into bunk beds, five or more to a room. This is a makeshift, uh, a makeshift bed. It's <laughs> so you have squeezed beds into every corner you possibly yeah, can. We have to do that. Yeah, we have to do that. The teenagers crowd around a stove cooking noodles and beans. During the day, they play soccer in the yard or take courses online. You see how online classes do. They're really trying their best. Emmanuel is 17. We're only using the students' first names since their legal status is uncertain. I was studying, like, wanted to be a medical doctor. I was still my first year, you know, had big plans, big dreams. Wow. You're, you're using the past tense. You say, I had big plans, had big dreams. Well, thanks for the notification. I, I still have the big dreams of the <laughs> How long have you been here at, in this house? Uh, a month. And you've made friends? Uh, family. Family? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Is this guy part of your family now? Yes. The two young men give each other a hug. What's your name? Yeah, I'm Daniel. 17 years old. Are you also a medical student? Yes, I was studying medicine in Kiev for I left. That's true of most of the students here. When I was little, I was like, okay, I want to be a doctor. Ima is 19, and she spent four months learning Ukrainian in the city of Ivano-Frankivsk, preparing to start medical school. Then the war broke out before she could begin her graduate studies. It's not easy because if I have to um, continue my studies, I have to apply fresh as a new student and I don't have all my documents, 
all my 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 high school certificates they're all in ukraine the original copies so what does that mean for your plans for your future i, I actually want to go back to ukraine that's the only resort right now to go back to ukraine the teenagers here at the house do the kinds of things families would do together braiding hair watching videos online anything to create some sense of normalcy during this scary, uncertain time. Once a month, they have a celebration for everybody in the house who had a birthday. Happy birthday to you. A student named Shakira shows us this video on her phone of last month's celebration. She had been pursuing a graduate degree in philology, the study of languages, when she fled Ukraine. Now, she feels like she's watching her life slip by as weeks turn into months. We are tired of being here. Nothing is happening. Our life is we're just like stuck in a cage. In a refugee crisis, you often find a cross-section of society. But at this shelter, nobody is average. There may be more people pursuing higher education crammed into this one house than in any other single-family dwelling in Warsaw. All the students here are people with the skills, smarts, and ambition to seek out a degree in a foreign country, in a foreign language. And so, while being adrift would be frustrating for anyone, it chafes even more for type A overachievers like Shakira. We didn't committed any crime. We want to pursue our education. We want to pursue our dreams. We want to get, you know, going, not post and then nothing is happening. Okay, what are you doing now? We've been here for like going two months. You're stuck in between. You know, it can go forward, it can go backward. The law should favor us also. We are not Ukrainians, yes, but we should understand that we are there when this war happened. The war has transformed millions of lives. And years from now, these young people may look back on their time at this house as a key moment when everything shifted. But it's impossible to know whether it will be a moment when their life was briefly on pause or one when their plans for the future were entirely derailed. Tomorrow, the scene at Poland's busiest border crossing, where the long lines are now going into Ukraine. When you get home, what will be the first thing you do? Uh, I am Budo I love you, my husband. <laughs> The war in Ukraine is also having ripple effects across the developing world. Food and energy costs are spiking, and that was already true before Russia invaded Ukraine, as Secretary of State Antony Blinken says. Every driver of the crisis that we'll discuss today has been made worse by President Putin's war of choice. Blinken chaired a meeting at UN headquarters today about global food security. NPR's Michelle Kellerman is here to tell us what happened. Hey, Michelle. Hi there, Mary Louise. All right, so what's the U.S. trying to get out of this meeting? Well, mostly Blinken wants to show that the U.S. cares about the problems that many countries in the world face right now. There's been so much focus on the war in Ukraine, including at the U.N., but many countries are consumed by their own problems, rising food and energy prices, climate change, the coronavirus pandemic, conflicts, and many also complain that U.S. sanctions on Russia are making matters worse. Hmm. Blinken... Um, made clear in this meeting today that he said that's false. He said uh, Russia's war and the blockade of Ukrainian ports are the real problem now. He announced some new aid and and talked about how the U.S. is really looking for solutions. And by the way, the U.N. Secretary General um, also spoke, and he said the world needs the food and fertilizer that Ukraine and Russia produce. And he says he's been 
having really intense contacts about that. Okay. Uh, let me turn you to another item on Secretary Blinken's calendar today. He met with Turkey's foreign minister. What was that about? Well, he wants to make sure that Turkey's not going to be a spoiler when it comes to NATO. Uh, Russia's war in Ukraine prompted Finland and Sweden to take historic steps to join the alliance. But Turkey is raising some doubts. Um, just listen to what the Turkish foreign minister Mevlet Cevasolu had to say at a brief appearance with Blinken today. You know, we have also uh, legitimate security concerns that they have been supporting uh, terrorist organizations and there are also uh, export restrictions on uh, defense products. So what I'm trying to say, we understand their security concerns, but Turkey's security concerns should be also uh, met. And when he talks about terrorist organizations, he's talking about, you know, the Kurdish militant group, the PKK, and mm. followers of an exiled cleric that Turkey says was behind a 2016 coup attempt. So it seems the Turks are really trying to use this issue of NATO membership to get some concessions from allies. And just quickly, uh, Secretary Blinken made a little news today. This is about the U.S. embassy in Kiev. Right. So the flag that was taken down before Russia invaded is now back up and the embassy is officially reopened. Uh, Blinken said there are additional security measures in place at the embassy. Um, he called it a momentous step and a sign of continued support for Ukraine. And PR's Michelle Kellerman. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on Marketplace, which starts at 6.30 tonight, a California judge has struck down a state law that required women to hold seats on the boards of public companies. We'll take a look at what the ruling means for the future of board diversity. Again, that's on Marketplace, which starts at 6.30. On Wall Street, a deep dive for Wall Street stocks. The Dow dropped 1,165 points, more than 3.5% to close at 31,490. S&P fell 4% to close at 3,924. The Nasdaq sank 4 and 3 quarters percent to finally settle at the end of the day at 11,418. The pace of recreational marijuana sales in Massachusetts is picking up. State regulators said today that pot retailers have sold more than $3 billion in products since the first shops opened in 2018. It took nearly two years to sell the first billion, and then it took just eight months to sell the third billion. This is WBUR at 619. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Jennifer and Robert Waldron Civic Fund, supporting education, equity, and truth. And Goddard House Assisted Living in Brookline, embracing the aging experience for seniors in the Boston area. Learn more about their innovative programs at goddardhouse.org. In the forecast, should be partly cloudy tonight, lows about 53. Could have showers tomorrow morning up until about noontime, followed by cloudy skies. Decidedly cooler tomorrow, about 58 degrees tops. Then Friday, back to the sunshine and the warm temperatures rising to the upper 70s. This traffic note, Mass Pike exit that has been closed for three and a half weeks will be reopening tomorrow morning. The State Department of Transportation says the Copley Square exit from the Pike East in Boston will be back open by 5 a.m. It's been closed since late April, so crews could repair the exit ramp. This is WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Emily Fang. 
The Saturday shooting attack on a Buffalo grocery store left the community torn and searching for answers. For many parents, broaching the subject with their children made the moment even harder. NPR's Alana Wise spoke to these families and brings us this story. For Black parents like Reverend Denise Walden Glenn, news of the shooting, allegedly perpetrated by an 18-year-old with racist ideals, struck especially close to home. Her 12 children, biological and chosen, range in age from 13 to 26. One of my sons is 18 years old, and his very first question to me was like, Mom, how does someone my age do something so hateful? How do you explain that? to your child. Since Saturday, Glenn and her office at Voice, a social justice organization in Buffalo, have been working overtime. Her middle school-aged children didn't go to school on Monday. We went through such a violent violation, and we are so shaken, and I don't understand how it feels as though it's expected to go on with life as normal. Tyrell Ford also works at Voice. After the shooting, he and his wife sat their two elementary-aged sons down to explain to them what happened. My wife took the opportunity to talk to them, to let them know that there's people out here that will target you based on the color of your skin. Ford's wife works as a first-grade teacher. She had to go back to work on Monday. They had a circle to bring the teachers together to see how everybody's feeling. And the, the black group just said they just broke down crying. He said that Buffalo should give parents and students time away from work and school to grieve. I don't think they're going to fully understand until they get a little bit older and start to see the world for what it truly is. And that's the risk we run with, like, exposing them to the dark side of the world so early on. White parents have also had to have difficult conversations with their children. 19-year-old Julia Wazinski attended a vigil with her mother and sister. I felt like he was really young, and it's just awful that so many young people can be influenced like this to do bad things. We was all shooken up that it happened. Jaden Durham is an 11-year-old student who attended one of the vigils with his mother and four siblings. He's black. After the Saturday mass shooting, he said his school practiced active shooter drills to teach them what to do if they ever find themselves in a similar situation. Our teachers would say, like, when something happens like that, be calm and just rock down the stairs and go outside. Also at the vigil was Candace Erni and her five-year-old daughter, Alina. They worked to pass out supplies like food and diapers alongside their church group. We actually just spoke to her before we came. Didn't fully get into details, but just let her know that an individual hurt a lot of people within a grocery store. And um, we just kept it at that. Alina understood some of what happened, but prodded her parents with questions like whether the man did it because he had a bad day. We let her know that someone who have used that were against the word of God, decided to act out of fear and violence rather than peace. But one question still weighed on five-year-old Alina. How did it happen? A question her parents were so careful to shield her from. Alana Wise, NPR News, Buffalo, New York.
One million people have died in the U.S. from COVID-19. NPR has been remembering some of them through the music that gave their lives meaning. We call these tributes Songs of Remembrance. Today, Deborah McCoskey-Reiser remembers her brother, Bobby McCoskey, and his favorite song, Closing Time, by Semisonic. Bobby was a Salvation Army bell ringer and a Special Olympics state silver medalist. He loved people and dancing and slot machines. I think one of our last trips was to Tunica, Mississippi. We met to play at the casino. Bobby loves the slot machines. And it got late, so we decided to go back to the hotel. Well, we decided to first knock on mom's door and take off running first. And <laughs> we were all laughing so hard in the hallway. And it was almost like we were little kids again. There were dances specifically for people with disabilities. Bobby went and he fit in very well there. It was a place that he could go, have a really good time, be accepted. Many of us know the song because it's played when the bars close. Well, <laughs> it's played at the end of the dances as well. Closing time, turn all of the lights on over every boy and every girl. But there's some lyrics in Closing Time that get to me a little bit. I think one of them says something about until your brothers and sisters come. This room won't be open till your brothers or your sisters come. And it makes me think of Bobby being in heaven. And then at the end it says, Closing time, every new beginning from some other beginnings and... You know, Bobby's gone now, and now we've had to learn what life looks like without him. We received a call on April 8th of 2020 saying that Bobby had tested positive for the virus. And the next couple weeks were up and down. I called him up and I said, hey, Bobby, guess what day it is? He said, your birthday. I said, did you get me something? And he said, well, I tried to. I thought he meant he tried to get something from the gift shop. I was wrong. He made a painting for me. And that's the day they released him from the hospital. When I finally reached him on Saturday morning, he was not himself anymore. I called the nursing home and I said, I want you to take my brother back to the hospital. Something is not right. And they didn't send him back to the hospital. On Wednesday, a lady from the nursing home called. I thought she was just calling to give me a report. And she told me that Robert passed tonight. At the time in Indiana, funerals were limited to 10 people. But that wasn't the way to send Bobby off. Bobby was extra special. He would never have loved to sit through a funeral. <laughs> jackets move it to the exits i hope you have found a friend there was a parade around my mom's block that began with a fire engine a salvation army truck a special olympics band tons of family and friends that had smiley face balloons tied to their cars our family stood out ringing bells and holding signs that said, be kind for Bobby or honk for Bobby. And it was the greatest celebration of his life. 
That was Deborah McCoskey Reiser, remembering her brother, Bobby McCoskey, who died at the age of 55 from COVID-19. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. An early start time for the Sox at Fenway tonight. The game is already underway, and Houston's already scored in the first inning. It's one nothing Astros. Nick Pavetta's pitching in this third and final game of the set. Some clouds around tonight falling to about 53 degrees. Tomorrow morning, showers gray for most of the day. Highs just about 58 degrees. It's 6.30. Join Anita Hill and Nina Totenberg at WBUR's gala. Tickets at WBUR.org slash gala. Thanks to sponsor Molly Shannon. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Summer semester starts June 6th. Semesteroff.com. And Red's Best, networking local fishermen, fish, sushi, and shellfish from the Boston Fish Pier, delivered to your home or for local pickup. More at redsbest.com.